Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for July 12th, 2020. I'm your host, Dave McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Hey, good to have you all on. And here in about 20 minutes, we're going to talk some Pennsylvania politics with Mike Mitkus, political consultant based out of Pittsburgh. Um, but we got so much to talk about, more topic that we can fit in. And, guys, I'm just going to go ahead and let you in on our pre-show. I planned this show out probably around lunchtime Friday, set the topics over, and um, something happened later in the day. It didn't get put on. And Catherine, Tim, and I were having a discussion about how do we fit it in and should we fit it in. And I'm going to tell you, my contention is is I'm not even surprised that Donald Trump uh, pardoned Roger Stone because Donald Trump uses power, abuses power to do crooked things because in my mind he's a crook. So I wasn't even shocked and I saw the headlines, oh, this is you know, the biggest abuse of power in American history. Maybe, but are we surprised with this guy? Catherine? Well, I just want to clarify that he didn't actually pardon him. He, uh, what is it called? He commuted his sentence, which is a, a, a it's a, it's a narrow uh, uh, difference, but it does uh, mean that his uh, immunity and other uh, agreements remain intact, whereas if he had been pardoned, they would not. So uh, I think that was a uh, clever move by uh, Trump's attorneys to commute it instead of pardon him, number one. It's just ridiculous. So part of the reason that they commuted it, that he said, that the the administration has claimed, is because of the spread of COVID-19, which we'll talk about later about – Keeping getting the schools back open. I think it's really interesting that we should release this convicted felon because of concerns about COVID-19, but we want all the economies to open and businesses to reopen and schools to reopen, but we can't possibly risk the, you know, health of this convicted felon. Yep, Tim, maybe the there's a filming of a new Batman movie and he's scheduled to play the Penguin. What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, first of all, I'll tell you who was surprised by this. Of all people, the Attorney General, Barr. Yeah. How many times do we agree with him besides what? None. But today we do. He he he, he just said, you know, he, he wouldn't have done that. He, he he thought uh, – he likes to call – when things are right, he calls them righteous. So he said this prosecution was righteous and that they had arrived at the right conclusion and that he was guilty. I mean, this prompted Bob Mueller to pen an op-ed, you know, um, I mean, in the Washington Post. And Mueller never says anything. And and he was pretty indignant about it, too. Um I think it's going, one thing that's going to be interesting to see if pulls guys like him and Kelly back into the campaign. You know how many winning yeah, campaigns be. Stone has been a part of? Six. So he knows how to do that. And Trump could certainly use some help. Uh, and, and he's crooked as a dog's hiding like that. I mean, that... That we know about Stone, but but uh, he know he knows how to do things like campaign, and there is and he's the kind of guy that would do anything, and that's the kind of guy Trump likes. So uh, it's funny saying he got commuted uh, over 
concerns about the virus, but uh, Cohen had to go back to jail. No, Trump and them weren't too concerned about that, but uh, no, this was yeah. a... This is a massive story, even though it wasn't surprising to me. It's yeah, sad yeah, it's not surprising, and it, and I don't think it moves votes. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to change their opinion. The people that are still with Donald Trump, that you know, high thirties, low forties number that's just unmovable, seemingly, they're just not going to move for this. And um, then, of course, everybody, you know, the fifty low fifties number that absolutely is going to show up to vote against Donald Trump seemingly, they're not going to, you know, it's not like they need the persuading. So we will see. Well, let's talk about another race, and uh, this one, I guess, is still in the persuadable mode, and that's the special election Senate race here in Georgia. And this past week, um, Kelly Loeffler, you know, she's down to Doug Collins in every poll we see, including a new one, um, from um, Doug over at Gravitz and Kelly Loeffler trails Doug Collins. And so the tax seems to be let's move to the right to try to, you know, pull off hardcore rock rib Republican votes um, from Doug Collins. And the latest tax she's using is she is a co-owner of the Atlanta Dream, the Atlanta WNBA franchise, um, and, and I'm not even really sure if they're doing a bubble and they're even planning WNBA games because right now would be their season. But she's owned this team for a good many years. Um, sounds like she actually had um, some form of a personal slash working relationship with a lot of her players. And a lot of the players in the WNBA have been very outspoken on race and um, community and police issues, uh, including some WNBA, uh, including some Atlanta Dream players. And Kelly Loeffler wrote a letter to the commissioner of the WNBA saying that they shouldn't, you know, put Black Lives Matter on the courts. Um, there was something about some shirts and that she also wanted to um, put an American flag on the jersey. And, and, you know, other sports have put American flags on the uniforms. But she had no real um, interest in the WNBA being involved with um, any kind of social justice movement, uh, no understanding that she did say in the letter that African-American lives matter. I thought that was kind of curious. I mean, obviously, it kind of means the same thing, but it's like she went out of her way to not say black lives matter. Yeah. She said African-American lives matter. I thought that was a curious wording. Um, when she was doing all this, Catherine, I don't know if you saw the whole letter, know much about the background of all her and the WNBA, but kind of what's your take? I think it's, well, one of the things she said is that, you know, politics shouldn't be a part of sports. And, you know, uh, I personally, I don't think the Black Lives Matter movement is partisan political. It's political, but it's a social movement, and it isn't Democrat or Republican. It's a nonpartisan social issue um, that has a national um, impact. And I think that players who feel strongly, I mean, a big portion of the WNBA is black women players, and if they feel strongly about it, they should have the opportunity to uh, voice their opinions just like anybody else on the court or off the court. Um, I think it was, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm sure she believes that, like that she doesn't want that in the WNBA, but I think it was, uh, like you said, it was timed and um, marketed, I guess is the word, because she's trying to get, you know, the more conservative far-right voters on her side. So, but I disagree with her, of course. Yeah, Tim, the WNBA really hadn't been in the conversation as far as restarting in sports. Now, there were were a few players, including one from the Atlanta Dream, that said they were not going to play this year. I mean, that's, I guess, assuming there was a season – um, to work on you know, social justice matters, although you combine that with COVID-19 and 
the safety precautions just are very hard to figure out based on what MLS has experienced thus far this weekend. Um, kind of what's your take? I mean, was was this Kyle Loeffler really having an opinion as an owner, or is this um, candidate Kelly Loeffler grasping at straws? Yeah, that's the second thing. She 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 has Trump. She's a dro- ad- adopted Donald Trump's opinion on on the uh, Black Lives Matter movement in order to try to position herself to the right of Doug Collins because uh, voters now see her to the left of him and he's just he he's just thumping her. Uh, I don't I don't think it's going to work because it wasn't that he was to the left or right over. The voters of Georgia preferred that he be appointed to her being appointed. Not only that, if she tries to position herself with Trump, Trump also, uh, you know, preferred Doug Collins being appointed to her. And and he didn't mind letting anybody knowing it, including her, to her face in the Oval Office. A lot of the players, though, as a result of this, are calling for her removal as as the co-owner of the team down there. And um, she should, if, if she says we shouldn't talk about politics, what was she even bringing up for? Why did she have to publicly do all of that? Why not just contact the league office and quietly say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm opposed to the league's decision to promote it on uniforms and things like that, and we shouldn't do that, and let it go. No, she had to do it publicly, and it was a vote-getting measure. And, and the response from, from some, you know, in social media, I saw one, Gigantic letters, E-N-O-U-G-H, exclamation point, O-U-T, exclamation point. That was the message to Kelly uh, Leffler right there. Uh, so, you know, she, she didn't do herself any good by, by doing this. She's, she's already alienated voters that don't like her, and now she's alienated uh the 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 very people who work for her in, in that professional league there, and and she sold a reputation. She might as well sell them and get out. Well, and that was my next question. Um, and Catherine, I'll ask you first, and then Tim. When the season tips off in the summer of 2021, and I'm assuming that they'll go back to their normal schedule where they kind of pick up as soon as the NBA ends, and then they go until. Uh, in that in-between period, um, will she be sitting there without a Senate job and without a team? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I sort of feel like she doesn't really deserve my extra thought about it. <laughs> you know? But whatever. Uh I don't think she'll be a senator, but it's hard to say about ownership of a team. You know, I don't know what their, you know, financial circumstances are and how important it is that she remain an owner. Tim, same questions. Well, uh, I'm on record from day one is saying she's going to lose. Collins is going to beat her. Uh, she she's going to be a goner right there. Uh, she'll be lucky to make the runoff. Um, so that being taken care of, uh, the league seems to be very viable and on good financial footing. There'd be a lot of people interested in buying her share of it. Perhaps the other owner of the team or the other owners of the team, whoever they are, would be interested in buying her out. But there'll be some takers if she wants to sell if she doesn't want to sell, boy, she's got some serious, serious fence mending to do, and uh, it would really take bending over backwards and U turns and all kind of good things that I, I just don't know if she would be she would be up for that. Better, I think that that she finds herself a year from now neither in the U.S. Senate 
are as a co-owner of that team? Yes, um, I'll I'll echo it. Of course, I'm on record too. She's just not going to win. She's not going to win the special election. If for some reason um, she were to, you know, eke out ahead of Doug Collins, I think Raphael Warnock or uh, Ed Tarver or Matt Lieberman could beat her in the runoff because I think the stock trades are so odious it cuts across partisan lines. Um, and, and that would really cost her there. But then on this team thing, should she? I, I don't think she'll be made to sell her team because I don't think what she said was it wasn't a Donald Sterling situation where she apparently or he um, had, had used the N word repeatedly and things like that. So she'll be able to keep the team, but as the owner, will she be able to attract players and keep the team viable? you know, on the court and win, which will then help them at the box office, that's where the difficulty is going to come. Because from what I understand about the WNBA is a lot of the players, they play in Russia and they play in China, among other places, and they play in the winter in the traditional basketball season for um, college, high school, and pro. They play overseas. They actually make a lot more money than they make in the WNBA, so, therefore, when they come to the WNBA, now there are a few of them, like uh, Elena Deladon that just played WNBA. They have a, a situation where I think they can be more selective about where they want to play, where they want to live and spend the summer. And if people are just so turned off by Kelly Loeffler as an owner, then the other owner is going to have to say, this is just about being able to win and lose. What's the point of owning a team that's destined to lose when our draft picks won't sign with us? Our free agents won't come there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then, of course, the people of Atlanta will be. And, and, you know, I mean, let's be honest, they're not thought of as highly in the sports lexicon as the Hawks and the Falcons and the Braves and the United. But still, I mean, people want that team to just automatically lose. Um, so that's a lot to put in. And so – you know that's another negative. She's she's uh yeah been shady with the stock trades. Now she's tanked at one of her assets, uh, if you, you will. Know, so, David, what a mess. Tim, you know, you know what's you know what's really eats at me about somebody like her, especially after all these years in politics that that I've seen people like this. If I have a choice between her and Doug Collins, I'm gonna pick Doug Collins in a minute. You know why? He's genuine. What you see is exactly who he is. You know where he stands. Like the old joke goes, you don't have to look in the paper tomorrow to see how he voted. She, she, she don't believe half of this nonsense. She is doing or saying anything to win, including this. That's not a genuine person. That, that's one of the reasons he's turning off voters. Go ahead, Catherine. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, you're I also good. Don't think she, I don't think she really um, is um, that interested in being a um, being serving her country, serving Georgia. I don't. I think it's a. Um, she's an opportunist. I think she's doing this because it like beefs up her resume. It looks good mm-hmm. to, for whatever reason. I don't. Th- mm-hmm. I, I don't get the feeling from her that she's really devoted to the people of Georgia and really wants to serve them. You know what I mean? That's just not the impression I get of her. What do you think, David? Is she genuine? Yeah, there's something missing there, and it looked like it was missing before, but the stock trades really exposed it. And then I guess the person that this really splashes back on is Brian Kemp because – You know, I understand what he was trying to do, and honestly, he probably was trying to do the right thing for the Republican Party because an all-white male party is not a party that has a long-term future in most states uh, around the country. So they have to have more women. They have to have more uh, people of color. But he just chose the wrong person here. There were were other women he could have picked in the state, or he could have gone – with a man of color, um, I, I think you know Ashley Bell. I don't think would have kept stepping in um, in his own way like Kelly Loeffler has. Um, and so, uh, 
it was just not a good pick on his part. And I noticed I haven't seen anything where he's weighed into this, although he doesn't own part of the Atlanta Dream, and he's got his own problems uh, with COVID-19 and us being a Sunbelt state to deal with this. So, you know, that's kind of a – uh, something to factor in. Well, let's see if we can get to kind of a small topic real quick, and that would be um, there was a poll um, that came out, and it was actually it was done by Public Policy Polling, Tom Jensen, but it was crowds. Well, actually, let me put a pin in this because we're now ready for our guest, and I'll go to that, and then we'll come back and talk about that poll. Welcome back to the Kudzu Vine for several times now, political consultant based out of Pennsylvania, Mike Mitkus. Welcome back, Mike. Hey, David. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, doing good. Glad to have you. Um, Well, Mike, you're going to talk about Pennsylvania, but I wanted to start out by talking about a guy from Delaware that has Pennsylvania roots and see kind of what the um, average Pennsylvania voter thinks of that. Um, We know that your state... Uh, flip back to the Republican column last time. It was one of those three Rust Belt states that kind of flipped back. Um, how much does just the fact that Joe Biden's from Scranton and then Joe Biden served in Delaware, which is a part of the Philadelphia media market, or I, I believe it is. I don't know that much about yeah, Delaware TV, but I've heard. Um, how much does that help him just naturally in Philadelphia? Or I'm sorry, in Pennsylvania in general. Well, I got to tell you, Joe Biden has always been fairly popular in uh, Pennsylvania. In fact, as a senator, the, you know, the, the you know people always knew him as Pennsylvania's third senator. Uh, look, he's had you know because of his roots, because of the proximity, the Delaware, the state of Delaware is in the Philadelphia media market, so he's been well known in Pennsylvania, well liked in Pennsylvania for a long time. In fact. Back in 2010, if you remember, that was the year the Republicans took back the House and the Senate. Uh, Barack Obama at that time was incredibly unpopular popular in Pennsylvania, yet I was working in a pretty Republican district, and we were able to bring Joe Biden in twice for that race because he, his numbers were that strong in Pennsylvania. And this was in western Pennsylvania, not even in the mm. Philadelphia media market. Mm. Yes. Well, now tell me, and I know Scranton is more of a northern eastern city. I've been, I've actually eaten at in the city once, uh, driven through it. Um, how is the political lean of that city in particular? Well, Lackawanna County um, is, you know, that's where uh, uh, Scranton is located. It's, a, it's historically been a heavily, heavily Democratic heavily unionized area. In fact, Hillary Clinton, though she won it in 2016, she only won it by, I believe it was like 4 or 5%, where Barack Obama in 2012 had won it by 20%. It's one of those blue-collar, predominantly white areas that were historically Democratic that started the trend against the Democrats. It's also where uh, Senator Bob Casey's from. So, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, Scranton actually, you know, while it's not the biggest of cities like Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, you know, it was, was always a pretty good launching pad for running for office because Lackawanna County and neighboring Luzerne County and that whole northeastern corner of the state was traditionally Democratic. Now, outside of Lackawanna County, where, where Joe Biden's from, you know, those areas have moved away from uh, – uh, the Democrats in recent elections, especially in 2016. But the, the best thing about him as a candidate in terms of winning Pennsylvania, you know, he's going to do much better than Hillary Clinton did in that region just because he, he grew up there he, and he's always maintained a relationship with that part of the state. So, look, I think that plus a number of other factors, I think makes Joe Biden a favorite in the state of Pennsylvania for this November. Yes. Well, I'm going to ask you one more question just about the geography kind of. I know, and this is the true in a lot of states, um, you know, Democrats have done better in big cities and the suburbs around those big cities like Philadelphia, like Pittsburgh, and then the rural areas, the Alabama part of uh, Pennsylvania, to quote uh, James Carville, I guess, have trended more Republican. 
how much of Pennsylvania will be decided by getting those rural parts or maybe cities like Scranton and Erie and um, Harrisburg to come back a little more democratic, or is it just going to be a mass moose and try to get more votes in Metro Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia? Well, the thing about Pennsylvania, it, it, it's not an either or. Um, a lot of these counties that were Donald Trump won that actually were historically Democratic, but, you know, for the last 20, 25 years, have been moving away from the Democratic Party. He doesn't need to win those counties. He just needs to improve on Hillary Clinton's numbers. And then I think you couple that with you know, driving out turnout in the city and, and in the suburbs of Philadelphia, plus, you know, Allegheny County where the city of Pittsburgh is. You know, you do those things, you know, you need to win. He needs to win Erie, and I think he will, he will win Erie. I think he'll win Lackawanna by a wider margin. Uh, but for the most part, the rest of the map can stay the same as long as he improves on those numbers in those outlying counties, especially, especially in the southwestern corner, which I, I think there's a very good possibility he will. Yes. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pass this thing to Catherine, who will pass it to Tim for some more questions, and they actually may move to other things besides the presidential race. Not sure. Catherine? Sure. Hey, thanks for being on tonight. We appreciate it. Always nice oh, to talk to someone from Pennsylvania. Um, I'm going to ask a little bit off topic, a little bit off politics, just because I'm curious. It's not really off politics, but how do you think the pandemic – is what is the impact of the pandemic on both on the voters in uh, Pennsylvania and on the voting process? Have you had sure. um, any any um, problem voting problems around the? I can't remember when your primary was. So it was June second. So we were. Yeah, we we yeah, actually. So. Um, you know, in in some ways, our our primary was originally slated for April 28th, but due to the pandemic, the governor postponed it, moved it to June 2nd. Now, fortunately for Pennsylvanians, this was actually even before the pandemic going to be the first election where voters could vote by mail with no excuses. It used to be uh, uh-huh. pre- Pennsylvania previously in all previous elections, it was pretty restrictive. You not only to get an absentee ballot, you had to have a valid excuse. You either had to be out of the area, or, you know, traveling, or you had to have a doctor's excuse to so say you, you were not healthy enough to go to the polls. But that all changed with this election. Believe it or not, the Republican legislature passed this legislation. Uh, the governor signed it. In fact, uh, there were more Democrats that opposed the legislation because they got rid of straight ticket voting. So this election was the first time we were going to do, do it by mail. Now, because of the pandemic, these counties were just swamped with applications. People were requesting mail ballots. And, uh, you, know, you know, I hate to say it, pretty much every county, you know, took some time. It took, you know, we're used to in Pennsylvania getting their ballot, getting your ballot, uh, you know, or actually getting your results, you know, by, by 10 o'clock at night, you normally knew right. who won a race unless it was incredibly close. And, you know, Philadelphia, it took about a week for them to count all, all of their mail-in ballots. But as far as the voters, you know, Allegheny County was very proactive. What they did, and that's and Allegheny County is in the west where Pittsburgh is, they actually mailed an application to every single voter. Republican or Democrat to make sure that they did it, that, that they would get a chance to vote and vote safely. And, but what they had to do, because they couldn't get the people who were willing to work the polls, you know, the poll workers and right. Allegheny County went from, I think it was about 1200 polling locations to about 120. Um, and, you know, was, you know, we have a lot of townships and boroughs, you know, Allegheny County, you know, uh, I think it's 120, 115 municipalities, and we only had 120 polling locations. We basically did one per municipality, combined some municipalities that were very small, and did them in every uh, ward, ward of the city. But, you know, the, obviously, 
you know, that, that was problematic, but they had no choice. They had no choice because they couldn't get the people to staff the polling locations. Um, fortunately, at least on the Democratic side, about two-thirds of the voters actually voted by mail rather than in person. Uh, on the Republican side, it was the complete reversal, mainly because Donald Trump you know, has been railing against voting by mail, falsely claiming that it leads to uh, voter fraud, um, you know, which is interesting given that the Republicans were the ones that passed this in, in the legislature. Um, now, moving forward to the fall, you know, we're starting to see spikes here in terms of the virus in the western part of the state. Um, I think it's going to be a, I think we're probably going to have the same scenario in November. The one hitch is Donald Trump's campaign and the Republican National Committee, along with a couple of members of Congress, have sued the, the, Department of, the Department of Elections and every single county Department of Elections over mail ballots. Because what uh, some counties did, because you know, ballots got mailed out late because they were just so overwhelmed processing uh, the applications, is that they, ha- they set up drop-off areas where people could just drop their their ballot off in a bin in case they got it too late to you know get it in the mail and feel comfortable that it would arrive in time. So we'll see what happens with that um, legal mess that the Trump campaign uh, created. Um, and, and from there, you know, depending on how the judges rule. Now, um, you know, if it stays in state court, I, I'm pretty confident it'll be resolved uh, fairly, you know, but, it, you know, it's a coin flip going with the Supreme Court based on previous uh, rulings they've had uh, in regards to voting rights. So we'll see what happens. It is really interesting because here in Georgia, the, um, we had almost the same scenario that you just described here in Georgia. Um, but the interesting thing uh, historically is that you're right. The, the, the Republicans in Georgia have had a, a mail-in ballot program for years, and it took the Democrats a while to figure out, oh, because this makes sense, we can do this. Um, so it's interesting now that they're all criticizing it for corruption and, and potential for fraud. So, you know, it's And look, so I, it, 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 it is all driven by – the criticism is all driven by President Trump um, mm-hmm. In fact, there, there have been a number yeah. of articles over the last month or so where local Republican Party chairs were worrying that you know Trump and you know his you know for lack of you know I guess if you say it nicely, discouraging Republicans to vote by mail has a number of Republican operatives and, and local party chairs, Republican Party chairs concerned that that may cost them the election. Right. I, I, I can believe that. Okay, well, thank you. That's great. That was great. Really good. Um, really helpful. And now I'm going to pass it to Tim. I know he has a whole list of questions for you. I always Thanks. have a whole list of questions for Mike Mickus. How you doing, Mike? Doing well. Doing well. Uh, listen, um you know, you're one of those states where uh, there was some redrawing of congressional districts done, and you went from a 12-6 Republican split to a dead-even 9-9. I want to break that tie this year. Over in the first district, you got Brian Fitzpatrick, and he won by like 2.6% of the vote. I think he got 51.3% in his race over there. Uh, although I, I realize it was a, a wave election year for us, and we did fairly well in it congressionally, I think we should do well again. How does oh, that I, seat I look this year? How look, does that I seat think, look? I think, I, I think the Brian Fitzpatrick seat, there are two very competitive seats in the state of Pennsylvania currently mm-hmm. held by Republicans. There's the first in the, it's suburban Philly. Um, that's going to be tough because um, Democrats had trouble recruiting a top-tier challenger. However, 
you know, that district I think is right for the pickings. Uh, but Fitzpatrick has been pretty smart. You know, he's been voting with the Democrats on a lot of the hot button issues, if you can imagine, uh, doing everything he can to save a seat. But still, with all of that, Trump's numbers are so bad in the eastern part of the state. You know, no matter what Fitzpatrick does, he could still end up losing that. And then in central Pennsylvania, um, uh, I almost said Rick Perry, but that's the governor of Texas. Uh, We have a, a Republican member of Congress, Perry, whose first name is... Uh, of, of hating me at the moment, but uh, he narrowly won in 2018. And this is in central Pennsylvania. It includes Harrisburg and some of the surrounding area. And we have an incredibly strong candidate there named Eugene DePasquale, who's currently the Auditor General uh, for the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, this is definitely a race to watch. Eugene is a great candidate, very popular, even in the one of the counties, York County, which is a fairly Republican. It's actually a very Republican county, uh, but he, he, you know, he'll, he won't win York County, but he'll do a lot better than the average Democrat does there. And then I think he runs up big. If he runs up big numbers in the city of Harrisburg, you know, he he has a legitimate shot of flipping that seat. And you know, it's quite possible we end up at ten eight or eleven uh, uh, seven. You know, come election night. Oh, sounds good. Now, in your state legislature, uh, the the makeup is, is fa- a fairly close split. The, the Republicans, I think, have like a seven-seat edge in the state Senate. Half of those seats are up for election this year, and in, in, in your house, I believe all of your seats are up. And the Republicans have like a 16-seat lead there. How does the race for the state legislature look any chance of a flip there there there, there, there is a chance uh, i think i think your odds are better in the senate uh number just the way the, the, the you know with half the senate seats up you know just the way the map is working out there are about four or five uh competitive seats uh where we can flip in the eastern part of the state um you know we'll see what happens and then um the one thing that may prevent them is that a Democrat from northeastern Pennsylvania, we're talking about Lackawanna County, where Scranton, well, just outside of there, Luzerne County, uh, a Democrat, he, he became an independent and decided to caucus with the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, so that may you know, make it where they come up a hair short, but they have a very, very good shot at you know, flipping enough seats to win it. The House is a little tougher. You know, the problem is these House and Senate seats, when the Supreme Court threw out the maps from two, year, you know, two, two years ago when they threw out the maps, that only applied to the congressional maps, not oh. the legislative maps. So the legislative maps are still pretty gerrymandered. But th- we have a lot of opportunities in the Philadelphia and, and uh, the, the – uh, Pittsburgh suburbs, where you know it's quite possible. To perp- and right now, if you wish for today, I, I'd say the Democrats certainly win back the House. Um, you know, we'll see how things roll, you know, play out as we roll along here. Um, but I, I, there are uh, there are some great candidates running for the state house on the Democratic side. Um, you know, we may be able to pick up, you know, two or three seats outside of Pittsburgh. And then, you know, a number, a lot of these Republicans in the Philadelphia suburbs are in big, big danger. Um, You know, just like you're seeing across the country, uh, suburban Mm -hmm. communities are moving to the, you know, very rapidly to the Democratic side for for the moment. And that, 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 you know, we may have an opportunity to win both the house and the Senate. I would say the Senate's probably an easier lift here in Pennsylvania, but um, you know, it, it, I, I would definitely not rule out what taking back the house as well. Mm-hmm. Now you, <clears throat> you mentioned Philadelphia and, and in years past, the, a lot of my Republican friends always told me, listen, Pennsylvania's fools go because Philadelphia and its suburbs will come in late in the night and win it for the Democrats every time. That didn't happen in 2016. 
for instance, African American uh, votes were down by more than 10% in the Philadelphia area. But James Carville once famously said, in Pennsylvania, you've got Pittsburgh, you've got Philadelphia, and you've got Alabama. So can Philadelphia and its suburbs still dominate the statewide vote as it once did? Actually, I think, I think so. Um, and the reason being, I mean, historically, and I'm going back even as recently as the 90s, you know, the suburban uh-huh. counties of Philadelphia, they call them the collar counties, that surround Philadelphia mm-hmm. were historically Republican. They are the actual mm-hmm. mirror image to these counties surrounding Pittsburgh in the West, where they're mm-hmm. moving to the they're, – they're becoming much more Democratic. Democrats have you know, taken control of Delaware County for the first time ever. Uh, you know, Montgomery County happened a while back, uh, Bucks County. You know, these counties are moving, and, and the thing is – they're the fastest growing counties in the state of Pennsylvania. You know, so what you see in the, in the Southwest, a lot of these counties that are becoming more Republican and, and really went hard for Trump are losing population. So when you do the math, it, I think you're going to see the Philadelphia suburbs combined with Philadelphia really dominate, uh, you know, for years to come, as long as this, Political alignment between some, you know, urban voters and suburban voters holds. You know, I'm not sure mm. what happens after Donald Trump leaves if it holds. But for this election, Philadelphia and their suburbs are incredibly important. Mm. Um, one more question, then I'm going to throw it back to David. Back in February, uh, you were interviewed by another media outlet. And you were asked about the presidential election, and you said that if anyone wanted major clues as to how the presidential election might go, watch State House District 28. What is so telling about that particular district? Sure, that's a suburban district. Um, I, in full transparency, I was a consultant on in, on a race in that seat last cycle. Uh, mm-hmm. the Democrats, you know, a, a very strong candidate named Emily Skopov uh, ran against the Speaker of the House. This is a guy that got 70, 75% of the vote every time he ran. It was a very Republican area. I've run countywide. You know, I in fact, one time I ran a race, we we got 61% countywide, but in that district got like 34, 35%. It was that Republican. But like a lot of the, the suburban areas, it's trending to the Democrats. Governor Wool, you know, Emily Skopov came up short against the speaker, but it was 50, basically 54, 46. You know, that was the closest race he ever had. And in fact, yeah, she decided to run again. He decided to retire and actually has already left the House of yeah. Representatives to go work in the private sector. I think he saw the writing on the wall. Uh, Governor Wolf won that district by double digits. Senator Casey won it by almost double digits. In fact, of all the dis- state House districts, so we have 203 state House districts in the state of Pennsylvania, no district moved as far as that has from 2014 to 2018. Uh, wow. Governor Wolf in 2014 lost that district by about 15% and then won it by, I think it was 10 or 12%. So that district is moving. And I think, you know, that state house race will show if, if Emily Skopov wins, I guarantee you Joe Biden is winning the state of Pennsylvania. If, oh. if, if she loses narrowly, I still think he wins. This is a district that, until Donald Trump became president, was such a it was such a Republican stronghold that no Democrat had a prayer to even be competitive. And you know now you have Connor Lamb. You know, and Connor Lamb won that district narrowly. Uh, Senator Casey did. 
our judicial statewide judicial candidates last year did the, a bunch of local seats, school boards. You know, there were Democrats elected to one of the schools school boards for the first time ever, ever. You know, not not wow. in the last twenty years, ever. So wow. You know, I th- I think that, that that district has a really good shot at being a bellwether. Oh, well, that's very interesting and informative. Thank you for that, Mike. And with that, I'm going to turn it back to David. David? Well, Mike, I want to thank you so much for coming on, giving us all this great Pennsylvania insight. And, Mike, we know you're a political consultant. You're not a member of the media that's all the time putting out content. But is there anywhere on social media or anywhere else that people could um, read your writings or thoughts in the interim? Well, they can follow me on Twitter. It's Mike Mikus, P-A, and Mikus is spelled M-I-K-S. That's basically it. And, uh, um, you know, I, you know, I am interviewed, you know, because of the Connor Lamb special election. I get a lot – I've built a lot of relationships with the national media looking for insights into what's going on in Pennsylvania, in particular western Pennsylvania. So that's basically it. But if you follow me on Twitter, I'm always uh, speaking my mind and sharing things of interest. All right. Well, glad to have you on again to talk of the Keystone State. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Mike. All right, Mike Mick. Good talking to you. Mike Mick is uh, based out of Pennsylvania now. Came down to Georgia for a while. That's how uh, we kind of, I guess, met Mike uh, when he worked uh, Roger Kahn, Mark Taylor, uh, among other races back in the early 2000s. Um, Well, let's kind of get back to our topic. This poll was conducted um, of Alaska, which Alaska is kind of an intriguing state because it trends Republican, but there's signs that it might not, and it hasn't been polled very frequently. Well, election Twitter, and a lot of the people we've had on the show, like J. Miles Coleman, like Carl Kondik, Evan, Evan Scrimshaw, um, uh, you know, all these folks are part of election Twitter, and they kind of crowdsourced this thing, got our friend Tom Jensen of public policy polling to um, conduct this poll, and it had some pretty interesting findings that show him that Alaska's in play in both the presidential race and in the um, – well, in the Senate race and in the House race, all the Republicans still lead those. Tim, what were your thoughts on those poll, that poll? Well, actually, I believe Young might have been a little bit behind okay. in his house race. I, I'm, now, I'm not sure about that, but I, I'm not looking at it right now, but I believe that he was. And, you know, he's had some close races in the past, and he has to run statewide because he's the only uh, House member in that state, so he has to run just like the U.S. senator, the governor, somebody does. He just does it every two years. And he just seems to get by. And maybe he has hung around one election cycle too many because if the presidential race stays like in the single digits there, especially in the three to five point range, I think we're going to pick up a U.S. House seat there. We better keep our eye on that Senate seat up there too because, again, if Trump, Trump should you know, run ahead of the other Republicans up there. And if he only runs three to five points ahead, we may have ourselves quite a good night in, in, in Alaska. And, you know, I really didn't think I'd be saying that in the middle of July of a presidential election year, did y'all? <laughs> Not at all. Um, I tell you what, when you describe that, Tim, every two years – running for the entire state of Alaska to serve in the yeah. House of Representatives, that seems like a, a cruel and unusual punishment. Catherine, let's kind of get back to the other part, and you're welcome to weigh in on the actual results, but the idea of people that are interested um, in a, a state that doesn't get a lot of polling, I mean, you know, your home state of Michigan, um, Texas, a lot of these states are for Florida. They're going to get polled, polled, polled. But people deciding where to poll and putting together four, six, six thousand dollars, whatever it is, how innovative is this? Um, I, I think it's an interesting strategy. Um, you have to be sure when you're doing something like that that you have a trusted 
pollster, which we know we do yeah. in um, public policy polling, um, who won't who won't uh, you know look at who's funding it and and attempt to skew the results. Yeah, I mean, you just mm-hmm. have to be careful. But yeah. um, I mean, we, we I trust PPP, so that's fine. Um, so did they do it like a – how did they do it? Do, you, do we know how they did it? I don't know if they did used they, Kickstarter like, a, or GoFundMe. I mean, I guess I could look did, back at the things. But they just – they crowdsourced it, and, and that's one reason I think it actually is more legitimate. We know sometimes when there's a client is the candidate, yeah, I can't make it look too bad. And then, of course – um, if it's a media source, somebody might say, oh, well, they want to at least have something to cover. If it's just saying, I'm interested in politics, I think Alaska may be intriguing, give me some numbers. If the numbers would have come back and it was a 20-point lead for Donald Trump and Don Young and uh, I forgot the senator up there that's even the Republican incumbent, um, you know, is anybody going to get mad and demand their money back? they just be like, okay, we'll try another one. You know, I mean, it was kind of a yeah, no, no red skin in the game, really. It's, kind of, it, it's yeah. an interesting uh, strategy. I kind of like it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that, um, you know, I guess everybody's got a lot of worthy causes, so you wouldn't necessarily want to have to fund every poll that happens through, um, you know, crowdsourcing. But every once in a while, interesting to see. And these are people mm-hmm. that they like to follow politics. I think they're – probably lean a little more democratic, although there are some Republican guys, uh, Jack Kersling, um, they're friendly with Jackson Darf, Red Racing Horses, um, so there's some Republican folks in this little uh, community, if you will, and by them coming on the show, I guess we're kind of a part of that community as well. Jim? Well, outside of the fact that, that yet yeah, Catherine is very right, this, this crowdfunding works fine if you hire a legitimate Poster. That I think that is the key. Now, as to his findings, they too, I don't think, can be called into question. The, the senator, by the way, is solid. And he defeated Mark Begich, as you recall, in 2014. Now, that was a huge Republican wave year, right? But yes. Begich only lost that race by 6,000 votes. In Republican Red Alaska. So just based on that and the fact that the Republicans have at the top of their ticket uh, someone who's not doing really well, to put it charitably, nationally right now, why shouldn't that Senate race be be competitive? Well, it, it is. And, and Tom Jensen's polling is showing just that. Uh, of all the three races, though, the thing that surprises me, I guess, the most is the fact that Trump's doing so badly in Alaska. You would think yeah. he would easily win that. I, I do think there is right? something about Alaska. Alaska's had a, a, a Republican, I mean, a Democratic governor in the past, say, 20 years, Tony Knowles, that won re election. They have Mark Baggett. Um, yeah, you know, Malika, Lisa Murkowski won, uh, lost yeah, in the primary that she re won as an independent. I think that state, it is. More males than females than, than any state in the nation, if, unless demographics have changed there. It is kind of a very individualistic, rus, um, um, rugged state, but I think it's a state where people are pretty authentic. And Donald Trump, I don't think of him as authentic, and I think the people of Alaska probably see through him. Um, even though but, they may lean to the uh, right of center, they just they just see through his but, deal. I mean, his Brooks Brothers uh, Fifth Avenue persona just doesn't really play in the wilds of Alaska. That state's only voted Democratic one time since it became a state, and that was in 1964 in the most massive popular vote landslide that a Democrat. Has, has ever won when Lyndon Johnson got 61% of the vote. You, you, you just, when you're coloring in your mouths, you know, get doodling on the Internet, uh, figuring out the electoral college calculators and stuff, you just go ahead and quickly uh, color Alaska red and Hawaii blue. Well, you know what? 
you're going to have to color Alaska a, a very light shade of pink uh, if you can find a, an electoral college thing with that sort of template on it. Uh, it, it, it don't look like that state is a gimme. And I was wondering, do you think it would be worth a uh, a Democratic candidate's time to say fly in, do a fly in to Anchorage? Because that's where sixty percent of the people in that entire state live. Why? Yeah, not I think give you, it a shot? you try to win the House and the Senate seat. And Joe Biden gets carried along with it, or if you somehow do campaign efforts for Joe Biden and it carries Al Gross and the House uh, candidate with it, which I believe Al Gross is going to run as an independent who will caucus with the Democrat. And I wonder if that right. does complicate things with DSCC funding. The Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee may not can help him. Um, I'm not sure how the rules go with that. Uh, you got me there. Catherine yeah. may know more about it, uh, but uh, the you know the state party up there has already give their blessing to him, and uh, you, you know that that's 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 a good way to pick that seat off. Yeah, and it sounds like a good guy, a good story. Well, let's we got about five minutes. Let's try to get into a little bit of this, and and there may be more. But we've talked about schools reopening and coronavirus before. But this past week, uh, Donald Trump and the education commissioner of Florida both weighed in. Just we're going to open schools. I think Lawrence Kudlow. It's not that hard. Ron DeSantis compared a school to a Home Depot. Um, I've been in both. Uh, I don't see the similarities. Um, Catherine, uh, how just myopic and just was this whole discussion just because he wants things to be open, not looking at any kind of science or medicine? Yeah, they just want them open. They feel like uh, it seems like they think that um, by opening the schools, they free people to go back to work and then so that frees companies to open back up. But, you know, I have I have quite a few friends who have children who are in school, and none of them are talking about sending their kids back to school. They're all like, you know, yeah, we would like schools to open because it would be easier for us, but we're not going to risk our children's health and our family's health and the health of the teachers, the administrators, the staff, everybody else, so to make our lives easier in the short term. Yeah. Tim, so I think, yeah, I think myopic is the perfect word. Let's look at the politics of this. Okay, if folks like Ron DeSantis just force kids back into school without any kind of um, preparation, you know, well, compared to Home Depot – I just want to interrupt you there for a second. He can sure. force the schools to open, but that does well, not he, mean the kids are going to come back to school. Exactly. And, and, every, and I'll, I'll tell you this, every um, school system around is doing surveys because most are saying you can come in person or this is the plan. We, you can come in person or you can learn online. What do you think? They're doing surveys because they're trying to see are 20% of people going to learn online or 40? I mean, it's and anything I said would just be a total guess. I have no preliminary numbers from any source. But once those counties get those numbers in, then they're going to have to reallocate resources like how many teachers do online and how many teachers do in right. person. It's going to vary from school by school. But, no, the, the governor of Florida, and, you know, of course, there's the bully pulpit. I, I'm sure if the state commissioner of education pushes it, if the governor pushes it, it's going to mean that a local school system is going to have to really stand up. Some will. Atlanta City said nine weeks of online learning. Um, they stood up, which really, I mean, I will say this. Brian Kemp has not made the pronouncements that uh, Ron DeSantis and the Commissioner of Education in Florida did. But, um, Tim, politically, they open up these schools, um, and, and it goes about like everything else goes. People get sick. I mean, it, unfortunately, nothing seems to go that well. Everybody gets sick um, in, in whatever environment. How does that even really help him politically? Well, you mentioned Florida. You, let, let's go there first. You, you – 
They had over 15,000 cases today. That was a worse day than than any state in this country, including the state of New York, has had during this entire pandemic. It ain't going to help Ron DeSantis at all. Now, in this state, you're right. Individual counties seem to be leading the way more. And, and you know, I thought that's, that's what these conservatives wanted our school system to be, uh, the right. federal government out of it and the state out of it when possible, and let the locals decide how to do things. They did send out surveys in this county, and those numbers have always already been published. And I can tell you in our school system, one out of eight, every eight respondents said that they were not sending their kids back to school. They wanted to do the whole thing online. Uh, that's a pretty significant number. When you start with 12% of, of you know school parents saying our kids ain't coming to school. In the whole school district, now across the whole county, 12%. No. Now, I don't know what it looks like everywhere else, but I think you're going to see similar and higher numbers of people. I think that we're going to see saying, higher numbers. Yeah, I do too, especially in urban areas like where you live, Catherine. It's going to be even worse because it's more concentrated and there's far, far, far more uh, cases. Um, yeah. so, well, and, and I think it's going to be worse in your county too, David. Yeah, I, I tell you this: I saw Arne Duncan talking about this. That's the uh, former Secretary of Education under President Obama. He said, "You know, opening schools is important. Learning is probably one of the most important things we want to do. But if we're going to open schools, we may have to close bars. We may have to close amusement parks." You know, choices are going to be made, and we know Walt Disney World opened up this past weekend. Every worker right. was wearing a mask. The commercial was very creepy um, with all the mask wearing. It really didn't make me want to go. Um, but And that's the <laughs> thing. Are people willing to make that tough choice and say kids that are six and seven years old learning how to read is more important than keeping the, you know, the Wild West Saloon open every Friday and Saturday night um, so people can go drink? Um, it's more important than reopening Six Flags in uh, Whitewater. If I'm not mistaken, they've actually announced that they're closing a lot more. They're actually going back in the other direction. Um, are people willing to make those tough choices? They're going to say, hey, we don't need to go sit down at restaurants um, for, from now, let's say now until Labor Day to see if we can get this thing back down where sitting a, a classroom is safe. I mean, and that's where leadership comes in. If somebody were to say, we want to have schools open, but we want to prioritize learning over other activities, that would help. And we're just not getting that at all. And I don't David, think we're going to get David, it at all. You're not going to get leadership at the national level. The president is saying, open the schools, period. That's the same thing Betsy DeVos said this morning on TV. They kept asking her how. What's the plan? Blah, blah, blah. She just said the schools just need to open. They just need to open. You know, uh, that's not what well, people want to hear. I just have a question. So how, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I, I don't have children, but in, education is really important to me. I don't understand how, you know, we keep talking about how in-person learning is so important, and I agree with that. But I'm just trying to imagine with masks, social distancing, limited um, access to, like, libraries and other um, resources in a school. You know, they're talking about how children would be have to stay in their classroom all day. Um, and, and teachers who move from class to class are going to be – it's going to be limited. So I'm just not sure how that in-person – learning in that environment is really any better than online learning. I mean, I, and, well, and I understand all the, all the setbacks for online learning and how it, in a, uh, it affects has a negative effect on people of color and um, under, you know, poor, poor people much more. I get that. And we need to worry about that, but I just, 
I'm not. I, I'm just confused by the whole thing. Yeah, well, I think I don't think we have any handle. We don't have any understanding about how limited um, internet access is in rural areas of the country. And I don't right. mean yeah. you know some county out in Arizona with five people. I'm just talking. I'm talking about the Tim, the counties that Tim and I live in. There are areas, and these are people that have. Uh, you know, two incomes, a nice home, but that home is up in the mountains, and it's just not feasible to uh, spread high-speed internet there right. for the Comcast of the world, Xfinity of the world, and therefore they don't have any access. I talked to someone who's multiple college degrees uh, and, and talked about how her home didn't have internet access, and she had to drive her kids to a, a restaurant parking lot uh, hotspot last spring. So it's not even just um, the economics so, and then yeah. struggling learners. Imagine a kid, well, one, a kid that's never been to school, they're starting kindergarten, and the first time they meet their kindergarten teachers online, that's not good. And then second, those struggling learners that really are trying to pick up reading and, and just aren't catching on like some kids do, those are the kids that are really, really going to get behind. The the learners that are probably, you know, they, they're pretty proficient, you could probably put together a pretty good online program for them. It's those other learners that's going to be the problem. But once again, I've discussed a bunch of things that Betsy DeVos has probably never even thought of. And needless mm-hmm. to say, I'm not the Secretary of Education. I'm farther, <laughs> much farther down the totem pole. Yep. Well, guys, I want to thank Mike Mickus for coming on. Until next week, that's the Cozy Vine. Good night, Good night guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still?